0: You're listening to KZOM, only on public radio. Manape the Mighty by Arthur J. Burks Chapters 1 and 2 Chapter 1 Castaway Lee Bentley never knew how many others, if any, lived on after the Bengal Queen struck the hidden reef and sank like a stone. He had only a hazy memory of the catastrophe, and recalled that when she had struck and the alarm had gone rocketing through the great passenger boat, though no alarm was really necessary, because she went to pieces so fast, that he had leaped far over the rail and swam straight out, fast, in order to escape being dragged down by the suction of the sinking liner. The screaming of frightened women and children would ring in his ears until the day the grave closed over him, screaming that was made all the more terrible by the crashing roar of the raging black seas which came out of the darkness to make the affair all the more hideous, and to bear down beneath them into the sea, the feeble, struggling ones, who had no chance for their lives. lifeboats had been smashed in their davits. Bentley swam straight away, after he was satisfied at last, that he could do nothing more. He had helped men and women reach bits of wreckage, until he could scarcely any longer keep his wearied arms to the task of keeping his own head above water. He knew even as he helped the white-faced ones that few of them would ever live through it. But he was doing the best he knew—a man's job. When absolutely sure that he could do nothing further, when he could no longer hear cries of distress or discover struggling forms in the sea which he might aid, he had turned his back on the graveyard of the Bengal Queen and had struck for shore. He remembered the direction, for before sunset that evening— In company with several ships under officers, he had studied the navigation charts upon which each day's run of the Bengal Queen was shown. Ahead of him now was the coast of Africa, though what part of it he knew but in the haziest way. He might not guess within a hundred miles. One thing he remembered exactly. The second officer had said, apropos of nothing in particular, This wouldn't be a happy place to be shipwrecked. This section of the coast is a regular hangout of the great anthropoid apes, you know, those babies that can pick a man apart as a man would pluck the legs off a fly. Bentley had merely grinned. The second officer's remarks had sounded to him as though the fellow had been reading more than his fair share of lurid fiction of the South African jungles. However, apes or no apes, the shore would look good to Lee Bentley now." and he fully intended making it. He knew he could swim for hours if it became necessary, and he refused to think of the possibility of sharks. If one got him, well, that was one of the chances one had to take, when one was shipwrecked against one's will. So he alternately swam toward where he expected to find land, and floated on his back to rest. "'A swell ending to a great life, if I don't make it,' he told himself. I wonder how the old man will take it, when the world reads that the Bengal Queen went down with all on board. He'll be relieved, maybe, for he was about ready to wash his hands of me, if I can read signs at all. It might be said that Bentley was his own worst critic, for he really was not a bad sort of fellow. He was a good American, over-educated, perhaps, with a yen to delve into forbidden places, usually avoided by his own kind and of digging into books, which were better left with the pages unturned. There were strange ruins in Africa, he knew. He had gathered a weird fund of information, from such books as he could unearth, relative to ancient ruins and vanished races, to the lurid accounts of strange deaths of the various scientists who had taken active part in the opening of the tomb of Tutankhamen. There were queer things in the heart of darkest Africa, and such things intrigued him. He could take whatever chances with his life he saw fit, for his only relative was a father, and he had never attached himself to any woman, nor permitted any woman to attach herself to him, because he could never be sure that her interest might not primarily be in his bank account. "'If, as, and when,' he told himself, as he rode the waves through the night, "'I reach the coast, I'll be tossed into black Africa, in a way I was not expecting. Anyway,' If I live through, I can at least go about my work without the governor interfering. I only hope it won't be hard on the old fellow. He isn't a bad egg at all, and I guess I have given him plenty to think about and worry over. He turned on his stomach again and struck out. He had managed to rid himself of all of his clothing except his underwear. They had only weighed him down, and he recalled, with a wry grin, that Africa as a whole went in but little for the latest in men's sportwear." It must have been a good hour, since he had lost the Bengal Queen, back there in the raging deep, that he heard the faint call through the murk, "'Help! For God's sake!' He listened for a repetition of the call, minded to believe that his ears had tricked him. He fancied it had been a woman's voice. But no woman could have lived so long in those raging seas, in which any moment Bentley himself expected to be overwhelmed. For himself— he regarded death more or less philosophically, but a woman out there crying for help was a different matter entirely. It tore at his heartstrings, mostly because he realized his inability to be of material assistance. He was sure that he had been mistaken about the cry when it came again For God's sake, help! It came from his left, and this time it was unmistakable, piteous and unnerving. Lee Bentley had the horrible fear that he would never reach her in time to help, though what help he could give, when he could barely manage to keep himself afloat, he could not foresee. He was swimming down the side of a monster wave. He could see something white in the trough, and he struggled manfully to make headway, while the angry waters tossed him about like a bit of cork and seemed bent on defeating his most furious efforts. He saw the bit of white ride high on the next wave pass over it, and vanish. He dived straight through the wave as it towered over him. He came up, gasping, his hands all but clutching at a pair of hands that had reached out of the waters and grasped with a last desperate effort at the sky. Ahead of the hands was a broken piece of oar. Those hands had just despairingly relinquished their grip on the one chance of safety, if any chance there could possibly be, in that mad midnight waste. He pulled on the wrists, and a white face came to view. Wild, staring eyes looked into his. Black hair flowed back from a face whose lips were blue and thin. Take it easy, he counseled. Turn on your back and rest, while I see if I can get back your lifeboat. He captured the oar, and found it practically useless to sustain any appreciable weight, but he clung to it, because it was at least better than nothing at all. It had held the girl afloat for over an hour, and might be made to serve again somehow. With his left hand under the woman's head, and his right grasping the oar, he turned on his back to regain his breath. He was deep in the water, because the woman was now almost on top of him, but her face was above the water. He knew instinctively that she had fainted, and he was a little glad. If she were the usual hysterical woman, her fighting would drown them both." as a dead weight she was easier to handle. They drifted on, and hope began to mount high in the heart of Lee Bentley, the hope that they might yet reach land. When, hours later, he could hear the roaring of breakers, he was sure of it, if the breakers could be passed in safety. After that, their fate was in the lap of the gods. The girl, too, must have heard, for she turned at last in Bentley's arms and began to swim for herself. She was a strong swimmer, and the period during which she had been out of things had revived her amazingly. She even managed a smile as she swam beside Bentley into the creamy breakers behind which they could make out the blackness of shore. They were so close together that at times their hands touched as they swam, and could make themselves heard by dint of shouting, though they both husbanded their strength and their breathing for swimming. I'm not dressed for company, he told her i left my tuxedo aboard the bengal queen it was then that her lips twisted into a smile i wouldn't even allow my maid into my stateroom if i were dressed as i am at the moment she answered strongly but we're both grown up i think and there are times when conventions must go by the board we'll pretend it doesn't matter then mutually helping each other they fought through the breakers into the calmer water behind And managed at last to stand in water hip deep, with the undertow dragging at their limbs. They looked at each other and clasped hands without a word. They strode to the sandy beach, beyond which the jungle reached away to some invisible horizon, and continued on until they were at last beyond the reach of the waves. They did not look at each other again, though Bentley did notice that her garb was as scanty almost as his own, consisting mostly of a slip which the water had pasted fast against her flesh. Beyond noting that she seemed to be young, Bentley did not intrude. Nor did he think of the future. It was enough for the moment that they had escaped the might of angry Neptune, god of the seas. They dropped to the sands, side by side, and the sands were warm. That the jungle behind them might be alive with wild beasts, they did not pause to consider. Bentley had gazed at the jungle a moment before dropping down. He had noticed but one thing— a moving light somewhere among the tangled mass, a light as of a monster firefly erratically darting through the deeper gloom. The girl, he had noted that she was as much girl as woman, dropped to the sand and stretched herself out. Bentley looked about him for a moment, just now realizing what he had been through. Then he dropped down beside the girl and put one arm over her protectively, an instinctive movement. The two were alone in an alien world, and even this slight contact gave Bentley a feeling of companionship, he found at the time peculiarly appealing. The girl was in a drugged sort of sleep, but she stirred at the touch of his arm, and her hand came up so that her fingertips touched his cheek. He slept heavily, while outside on the raging deep the storm swept along the coast, bearing with it the secret of the rest of those who only last night had looked forward to a pleasant voyage, aboard the Bengal Queen. The last thought in Bentley's mind was of that flickering light he had seen. It was not important, but memory of it clung, and followed him into his sleep with his dreams, in which he seemed to be following a darting erratic light through a jungle without end. He wakened to the sun burning his face and torso, and turned on his stomach with a groan. The heat ate into his back unbearably, and he finally sat up, rubbed his eyes— and stared out to sea. Then it all came back, and he looked about him for the girl. She had disappeared. He rose to his feet and shouted. An answering cry came back to him, and after a moment the girl appeared around a bend in a shoreline, where she had been masked by a wall of the jungle, and came toward him. She was carrying something in her hands. When she stood at last before him, he noted that she carried a bundle of cloth that was dripping wet. "'We need something to cover us,' she said simply. "'I was tempted to guard myself, but I did not wish to seem like a simpering prudish female, which I'm not at all. So I brought my findings here, so that we could get together and fix up something to protect us from the sun.' "'You're a sensible woman,' said Bentley. "'I've never understood why people should be so sensitive about their bodies. "'Mine isn't bad. And yours, if you'll pardon me, is superb.' "'That's not a compliment, just a statement of fact. "'Which will help us to understand each other better. "'I've a hunch we're going to be some time in each other's company, "'and we may as well know things about each other. "'My name's Lee Bentley. "'Mine is Ellen Estabrook.' Solemnly they shook hands. "'And their hands clung convulsively, "'for as though their handshake had been a signal, "'there came a strange sound from the jungle behind them, "'a burst of laughter that was plainly human.' and another sound, which caused the short hair at the base of Bentley's skull to rise, shift oddly, and settle back again. The sound was like the beating of a skin-tight drumhead by the fists of a jungle savage. But if such it was, the drum was a mighty drum, and the savage was a giant, for the sound went rolling through the jungle like an invisible tidal wave of sound. Both the laughter and the drumming ceased as suddenly as they had sounded the man and woman laughed jerkily dropped to the sand side by side and considered the necessity of clothes chapter two into the jungle they had to smile together at the results achieved from the bedraggled bits of cloth bentley suspected that they had been taken from bodies washed ashore as gruesome reminders of the catastrophe which had befallen the bengal queen and because he did suspect this He did not ask questions that might cause Ellen to remember any longer than was necessary. Not that he doubted her courage, for she had proved that sufficiently, and she had proved that she was sensible, with none of the notions of the proprieties which would have made any other girl of Bentley's acquaintance a nuisance. Their next concern was food, which they must find in the jungle, or from other wreckage cast ashore from the Bengal Queen. Now, hand in hand, which seemed natural in the circumstances, they began to walk along the shore, heading into the north by mutual consent. As they walked, Bentley kept pondering on that strange laughter he had heard, and on the sound of savage drumming. The laughter puzzled him. If there were anyone in the jungle back of them, why had he or they failed to challenge them? As for the drumming sound, Bentley remembered what the second officer had said about this section of the coast— It was a bit of jungle inhabited by the great apes in large numbers. So that drumming had been a challenge—the man-ape's manner of mocking an enemy by beating himself on his barrel chest with his huge fists. But that the ape had not been challenging Bentley and the girl, Bentley felt quite sure, as the brute would certainly have shown himself in that case. They trudged on through the sand, while the sun beat down unmercifully on their uncovered heads— Ellen Estabrook strode along at Bentley's side, without complaint. After perhaps an hour of this unbearable effort, when both felt as though the sun had sucked them dry of perspiration, they encountered a rough footpath leading into the jungle. The path suggested human habitation somewhere near. The inhabitants might be hostile natives, even cannibals perhaps, but in this unknown land they would have to take a chance on that. With a sigh of relief, and refusing to look ahead too far, or try to guess what lay in wait for them in the black mystery of the jungle, they turned into the footpath. The jungle was fetid and sweaty, but even this was a relief from the intolerable sun, which could not reach them here, because the jungle had closed its leafy arms over the trail instantly. One could not tell from the path whether it had been made by natives or by whites, for it was packed hard. It led straight away from the shoreline, "'We'll have to keep a sharp lookout for possible poisoned spring darts, Ellen,' said Bentley. "'I'm not afraid, Lee,' she answered stoutly. "'Fate wouldn't allow us to come through what we have only to end things with poisoned darts. "'It just couldn't happen that way.' Thus simply they addressed each other. It seemed as though years had been squeezed into a matter of hours. They knew each other as well as they would. In other circumstances— have known each other after a year of constant association. Here, barriers of conventions were raised as simply and naturally as among children. They had pressed well into the gloom of the jungle when the first sound came. Not the laughter they had heard before, but the drumming. It was ahead and somewhat to the left, and as they stopped without speaking, they could distinctly hear the threshing of a huge body through the underbrush. The sound seemed to be approaching— and for a minute or so they listened. Then the sound was repeated off to the right, a trifle further away. "'Can you climb, Ellen?' asked Bentley simply. "'This section is filled with anthropoid apes,' according to the second officer of the Bengal Queen. We may have to take to the trees.' "'I can climb,' she said. "'But from what I've studied of the habits of these brutes, they do a great deal of bluffing before they actually charge.' and may not molest us at all if we pay no attention. Bentley felt almost nude, because he had no weapons save his own fists, and he would not have admitted even to himself how deeply he was concerned over the girl. As far as he knew, this section might be entirely uninhabited. It might be given over entirely to the anthropoids. In this case he shuddered to think of what might happen to Ellen Estabrook if he were slain." He quickened his pace until Ellen kept stride with him with difficulty. The object uppermost, in Bentley's mind, was to get as far away as possible from the ominous drumbeats. They rounded a bend in the trail and stopped stock still. Within fifty yards of them, blocking the trail, was a brute whose great sigh sent a thrill of horror through Bentley. It towered to the height of a big man, and must have weighed in the neighbourhood of four hundred pounds." it was larger by far than any bull-ape Bentley had seen in captivity. It had been waiting for them, silently, with almost human cunning. But now that it was discovered, the shaggy creature rose to his hind legs and screamed a challenge, at the same time striking his chest with blows of his hairy fists, which rolled in a dull booming of sound through the jungle. At the same time, the creature moved forward." Bentley whirled to run, his hand clasping tighter the hand of Ellen Estabrook. But they had not retreated ten steps down the pathway, when their way was blocked by another of the great shaggy brutes, and they could hear others on both sides. Bentley's face was chalk-white as he turned to the girl. Her calm acceptance of their predicament, an attitude in which he could read no slightest vestige of fear, helped him to regain control of his own nerves which had threatened to send him into a panic. She even smiled, and Lee felt a trifle ashamed of himself. Now the crashing sounds were closing in. The two brutes before and behind on the trail were pressing in upon them. But no general headlong charge had yet begun. Bentley looked around him, seeking a tree with limbs low enough for them to reach and thus climb to safety. "'There's one!' cried Ellen. Tugging at his hand, she began to run. At the same moment the great apes bellowed and charged, but the charge was never finished, for through the drumming of their mighty fists on mighty barrel-like chests, through the sound of their charge, through the crackling underbrush, came again that sound of laughter. There was a fierce joy in the laughter, and the laughter was followed by words of a strange gibberish which Bentley could not recall as being from any language he had ever heard. The great apes paused. Out in the jungle to the right of the fugitives burst a white man. He was well past middle age, for his white hair hung almost to his shoulders, which were stooped with the weight of years. He was a wisp of a man, whose smooth shaven face was apple red. His eyes were black and expressionless as obsidian, and when Lee encountered the full gaze of them, he was conscious of that feeling which he had experienced at various times in his life, when he knew that some deadly reptile was close by. "'Stand still a moment!' cried the old man. His voice was strangely highly pitched and cracked. From his right hand, a whip with a long lash curled like a snake. This he swung back and hurled to the front, and the snap of it was like a pistol shot. The great ape on the path ahead cowered back, baring his fangs, roaring in anger. But that he feared the whip of the old man was plain to be seen. The crashing sound in the jungle died away rapidly. Immediately the first report of the whip lash sounded in the trail. Fearlessly, the little man dashed upon the first of the great brutes the castaways had seen. His lash curled about the great beast's body, and the animal bellowed with pain. It clawed at the lash— but was not fast enough to capture it. In the end, the brute broke and fled. The animal which had blocked their path in the rear had already disappeared. Now the little man came back to face the fugitives, and his lips were parted in a cordial smile. He coiled his whip and tucked it under his arm. He was dressed in well-worn corduroy, with high boots that were rather the worse for wear. Bentley saw that his lips were too red, like blood." and somehow he disliked the man instantly. "'Welcome to Barterville,' said the old man. "'It has been years since I have seen any of my own kind. People avoid this section of the jungle.' "'I don't wonder,' said Bentley, sighing deeply with relief. "'Those brutes would make anybody keep away from here if they knew about them. I thought they had us for a few minutes. They planned an ambush almost as well as human beings could have done it, "'But that's absurd, of course, merely a coincidence.' "'Coincidence?' snapped the old man, a hint of asperity in his words. "'Coincidence? I see you do not know the great apes, sir. "'I have always maintained that apes could be trained to do anything men can do. "'I have maintained that they have a language of their own, "'and even ways of communicating without words, "'a sort of jungle writing.' which men, of course, have never yet learned. I've devoted my life to learning the secrets of the great apes, their life histories, and so forth. I am Professor Caleb Barter. Professor Caleb Barter, ejaculated Ellen Estabrook. Why, I've heard of him. He went on an expedition among the great apes ten years ago and was never heard of again. I am Caleb Barter said the old man. I decided to disappear from the world I knew, to let other fool scientists think me dead in order that I might continue my investigations without molestation. And now I have almost reached the place where I can go back to civilization with information that will startle the world. There yet remains one experiment. Now I hope to make that experiment. No, no, don't ask me what it is. It is my secret, and nobody will ever wrest it from me. Bentley studied the old man. He seemed slightly demented, Bentley thought, but that might merely be the mental evolution of a man who had made a hermit of himself for so many years. If this chap actually were Professor Barter. Professor Barter, went on Ellen, was the scientific leader of his day. Others followed where he led— He made greater strides in surgery and medicine and in unraveling the mysteries of evolution than anyone else up to his time. Of course I believe you are, Professor Barter. My name is Ellen Estabrook, and this gentleman is Lee Bentley. We believe ourselves to be the only survivors of the Bengal Queen. Perhaps you can lead us to food and water? Yes! Oh, yes, indeed! One forgets how to be hospitable, I fear. I am sorry to hear there was a wreck, and that lives were lost. But it may mean a great gain to the world of science. I am happier to see you than you can possibly know. Bentley felt the cold chills racing along his spine as he listened to the old man's flow of words. He behaved well, but Bentley could feel, in spite of that, that there was a hidden current of menace in the old man's behavior. He wished that Ellen would keep him talking, would somehow make sure of his identity. Perhaps the same thought was in her mind, for it had scarcely come to him when the girl spoke again. Before he disappeared, Professor Barter wrote a learned treatise on I am Professor Barter, I tell you, young woman. But if you wish proof, the title of the treatise was The Language of the Great Apes. Ellen turned quickly to Bentley and nodded. She was satisfied that the man was the person he claimed to be. He didn't ask how Ellen happened to know about him, and Bentley himself considered the proof entirely lacking in conclusiveness. Anyone might know about the last treatise of Barter. However, they could but await developments. They followed Barter along the trail. Now and again apes challenged from the jungle, and Barter answered them with that strange laughter of his, or with a flow of gibberish that was like nothing human. Bentley shivered. Barter, by his laughter, was identifying himself to the great anthropoids. But with his gibberish, was he actually conversing with them? This experiment of yours, said Bentley, when the period of silence became unbearable. Won't you tell us about it? The old man cackled. You'll know all about it soon. You'll know everything. But the secret will still rest with Caleb Barter. "'Do not be too curious, my friends.' "'We are anxious to reach civilization, Professor,' said Bentley, "'deciding to be placative with the old man. "'Perhaps you can arrange for guides for us?' "'Barter laughed. "'I could not permit you to leave me for some time,' he said. "'I want you to witness my experiment. "'The world would never believe me without the evidence of reliable witnesses.' Barter laughed again. They entered a clean clearing which was a riot of flowers. At the further edge was a log cabin of huge proportions. The whole thing had a decidedly homely appearance, but it was a welcome sight to the castaways. There were cages in which strange birds chattered shrilly in their own language, at sight of the three. A pair of tame monkeys chased each other on the roof of the house, whose corners were almost hidden by climbing vines, whose growth one could almost see. Barter led the way at a swift walk across the clearing and into the house. Bentley gasped. Ellen Estabrook exclaimed with pleasure. The reception room was as neat as though it received the hourly attentions of a fussy housewife. It was cosily furnished. Yet it was evident that the furniture had been made on the spot of rough wood and skins of various animals. Deep-skin rugs covered the floor and walls— There were three doors giving off of the reception room, all three of which were closed. "'You are not married?' he asked the two. "'No,' snapped Bentley. "'The center door leads to your room, Bentley. The one next to it is for the young lady. The other door—' "'Ah, the other door, my friends. That door you must never open. But to make sure that curiosity does not overcome caution—' Let me show you. They followed him to the door. He swung it open. Both visitors started back, and a gasp of terror burst from the lips of Ellen Estabrook. Beads of perspiration burst forth on Bentley. They saw a huge room. In one corner was a bed. The other held a great cage, and in the cage was an anthropoid ape larger even than the great brute they had met on the trail. Barter laughed. He stepped into the room, uncoiled his whip, and hurled the lash at the cage. A great bellowing roar fairly shook the house, while the brute tore at the bars which held him prisoner, until the whole massive cage seemed to dance. Barter laughed and continued to goad him. "'Barter!' yelled Bentley. "'Stop that! If that beast should ever happen accidentally to get free, he'd tear you to pieces!' "'I know!' Said Barter grimly, and that's part of the experiment. Now, we shall eat, and you, young lady, shall tell me what other fool scientists had to say about me after I disappeared to escape their parrot like repeating of my discoveries. Bentley started to offer protest as Barter began preparation for the meal, which obviously was to be taken in the room which held the cage of the giant anthropoid. But Ellen put her fingers to her lips and shook her head. Her eyes were dancing with excitement. End of section 3